0: I know there's times during the practice or when we're talking, when we talk about just resting in awareness, or as with Joseph's talk the other night, just opening to the nature of awareness, and it can seem so natural and simple. can. Or at times when you have uh, an insight, really understanding deeply the pain of clinging, and for example, and the harder mind lets go. And it seems so obvious, really. It's not really nearly as mysterious as we had thought. And then what's also so easy and simple is how quickly that's gone. How quickly it can seem a distant memory. Or, if not yet, the mind projects into the future. You know, sort of some of the questions today a little bit how can i most maximize you know the potential to remember to rediscover to continue to understand selflessness or the nature of awareness or whatever so tonight i want to talk about a specific sutta of the buddha's where he talks about both of these aspects really the really subtlest most subtle aspect of ignorance which um, is the tendency, the potential for greed, for desire for being, for ignorance to arise in the mind. We're talking on very subtle levels, which is what you see in the practice. And he gives in this sutta seven different methods, all of which will be familiar to you, for the abandoning of these most subtle tendencies. So I I like this sutta. It has a lot of information in it. This talk's going to have a lot of information. Don't try to remember it all, please. You know, just sit back, let it come in. Most of it will be familiar, maybe just in a different framework, and use what is useful. So talking about these subtle tendencies, it's really, to me, it's come to be recognizing that I must view the power of conditioning with deep respect. You know, thinking if we see through greed 150 times, we get impatient if we have to see it again, you know. The power of conditioning is vast. There's one conceptual framework that I have found helpful in in trying to describe what I'm talking about as these subtle tendencies or these... um, possibility, potential for delusion to arise. It's it's called the three three levels or the three rounds of samsara, you know, painful, deluded understanding. There's three levels which the habits of mind manifest. The first level, where unwholesome or wholesome, but we'll talk about unwholesome here, habits of greed, hatred, and delusion manifest. The grossest level is on the level of action and speech, quite obviously. And what protects us in the uh, biggest level from this, from acting us out, is sila, is morality. That this is really the place that um, sila comes in. When we're really in the grip of greed or of anger here, just remembering, I really want that last cookie but there's someone in line behind me and I've already had two, just remembering Sela and you can put it down. So that's called the level of transgression, actually moving out and acting in an unwholesome way, protected by Sela. The second is when we don't actually act out, say you want that cookie, you don't take it, Sela protects us. But the second level is called the obsessive level. (laughs) <laughs> I don't have to say anymore, do I? <laughs> Just caught up for the next three days in thoughts about that cookie and all the ways it goes. <laughs> and the protection on the obsessive level is said to be samadhi, where you can really see, okay, come back, come back, come back. And the power of samadhi really cuts through that. Or when samadhi is really strong, this obsessive level doesn't arise at all. Now the third, and this is what we're talking about tonight, could be called the latent level, the underlying level. And now we have to listen to this without getting discouraged. (laughs) This is the level where there is the underlying potential for greed or for hatred, for a sense of self to arise when the conditions are suitable. It's like if a seed's been planted, if the conditions are suitable, the right amount of water and sunlight, the proper soil, it will sprout. So these latent underlying tendencies will arise given the proper conditions. Now what we're learning is the conditions aren't too esoteric. So for greed to arise, we really only need a pleasant sense object and consciousness and lack of mindfulness and boom, you know, there you have it. I think part of why um, retreats can, at times we can get discouraged is because we're seeing this in our daily life. We're so busy, we don't often perceive on this level so it's actually really good <laughs> that we're seeing it, but it is important not to get discouraged. now this this level, the latent level, is protected by wisdom, by Panya, that um, the Buddha often said that greed, hatred, and delusion, especially delusion, is abandoned not by actions, but by wisely seeing. And so seeing, these conditions and how, when there's not awareness, greed arises. Given something pleasant, giving something unpleasant, aversion arises. Seeing that is the beginning of our protection, of our uprooting it. So, the Buddha spoke often. He had a one word I'm using tonight from this particular sutta, where he talked about these underlying potentials. Uh, the word is asava in Pali often translated as canker, which is like a sore, or taint, or die. I'm just going to call it underlying potential or bias of the mind. And the three big ones are the ones I mentioned, the tendency of the mind to move into sense desire or being, becoming, desire for being, and ignorance, which covers everything else. And it's not these tendencies, they're not the state themselves. It's not the state of sense-desire, the state of self-identification, so much as the underlying possibility. So that's what we're talking about, that potential. And he, there are many places when the Buddha is giving a definition of a fully enlightened person. It's described as one in whom these asavas These potentials no longer exist. So that's really quite interesting to me. Also to even try and imagine what that could be like. No possibility of that state arising. That's when it's helpful to remember the statement that I know has been said before, where the Buddha often said, if it were not possible, I would not tell you to do so. It's important to remember that. He's not just, you know, talking through his hat, if it were not possible. So to begin with, it's just noticing how these tendencies can arise with humor without taking it personally. Someone today gave me a great example. It happens all the time. said so he just got up from a rest, saw an orange sitting on his bureau or whatever, A moment of a couple of thoughts, not quite mindfulness, the hand reaches out and grabs the orange, I'm going to eat it. And as soon as he became mindful, which was like four thoughts later or so, like, oh, I'm not hungry. I don't want this. Just put it down. But in the moment of pleasant sight, not much mindfulness, yeah, I want that, it happens all the time. What's also really important to notice is However far along it is, right at that moment or many, many mind moments and manifestations later, the power of presence, the power of mindfulness cuts right through that tendency. So as pervasive as these underlying potentials may seem, it's like, give me a break. You mean I let up mindfulness for two seconds? And greed arises, sense of self arises. I mean, there's times on retreat where I've just felt like, I can't bear it, you know. (laughs) What's the point? But it's important to also notice that the power of simple mindfulness can just cut right through it at any point. Truth, clear seeing is always stronger than Mm -hmm. ignorance, stronger than confusion. It's learning to trust that learning that it really is our protection, whether it's in the acting out, the obsessive quality of mind, or just in these simple underlying tendencies. And to recognize also that every moment of mindfulness is also conditioning other tendencies so that it's not just that in that moment of mindfulness there's no room for the greed, for example, to arise, but that moment of mindfulness is also strengthening wisdom, equanimity, concentration, clear seeing, all the wholesome qualities as well. So every moment of mindfulness really is, on many levels that we may not be aware of at that moment, is deeply changing our conditioning, thank God. but. The conditioning is deep, the tendencies are subtle. And we won't necessarily notice the effects at once. It can take who knows how long for these seeds to sprout. I remember um, I was a few years ago. I got a letter from a woman who had been here quite some years ago on a special work retreat, and she'd never to my knowledge, done Vipassana practice before. And while she was very enthusiastic, I, I had the sense, could be projected. She really didn't know what she was coming to or what she'd landed in, didn't really seem to get it, my esteemed opinion, while she was here. And I didn't really think about her again. And years later, out of nowhere, I got a letter from her, really a beautiful letter, just thanking me for being her first teacher, and that at that experience of that work retreat had really resonated in her, had changed her life, had deeply connected her to the Dharma. I was just thinking, you never know. It was it was very, um, very beautiful to me to see that, and it was also a help for the judging mind. It's just we don't know what's going on with anybody. We don't know how the seeds are going in. You know, who are we to judge? The Dharma is growing in its own time. If you could remember that about yourself, (laughs) it would really help. A moment of mindfulness is very powerful. And you don't have to wait for the day when these tendencies are completely eradicated before you begin to feel some confidence. (laughs) You can notice... I'm sure each of you has had at least one moment when, without thinking about it, you walk into a situation or you sit into a situation where normally all the conditions are there for aversion to arise. You know it normally would, or for greed to arise. And you don't have to talk yourself out of it. You don't have to pretend you're really being mindful and filled with metta the unwholesome factor just doesn't come. You know, you walk up, there's only two cookies left, there's four people in line behind you. You don't even think, "Mm, just walk past it. Greed does not arise. It's so, it can seem so insignificant that we don't recognize that what's happening in that moment was a prime condition for one of these underlying asafas to emerge into the the light of day, and it wasn't there. Ignorance was not present in that moment. That's very powerful. Notice those little moments. If it were not possible, I would not tell you to do so. And we don't start from being totally deluded and jump to being totally free from delusion. You know, it's a whole process. So appreciating it. So that's just a little bit synopsis of what we're talking about with these underlying tendencies, the three specific ones that the Buddha names again being sense-desire, for desire for being, becoming really the sense of I, and the last one just being ignorance, flat-out ignorance. And in this sutta, Besides describing, he he talks about seven different methods, all of which I think we've talked about in the retreat. They're all part of practice, but not just the specifics of very intense silent mindfulness practice. It's also a way of stepping back and looking at the bigger picture. Some of these methods are very practical and things that we can use in our daily life, not only on retreat. So the, um, the seven methods for abandoning these tendencies, all of them are founded on the basis of wise attention, which if you are able to remember back to however many weeks ago, I gave a whole talk on that and I'm not going to obviously go into it in that much detail, but For those who weren't here, because I know all the rest of you remember it so completely clearly, for those who weren't here, wise attention can be spoken of in two ways. The Buddha speaks of it as knowing what is fit for attention and what is not fit for attention. Now, to our minds, that implies some things are worth paying attention to, i.e., the things we like and that make us feel good. Some things are not worth paying attention to, such as all the unwholesome states and the ones that make us feel bad. That's not what he means. He means what is fit and not fit for attention is nothing intrinsic to the arising experience itself, but it's in the mode of how we pay attention to what's arising. So, for example, if... We're paying attention if angers are rising, and we pay attention to it in the way of, I am so angry, I am really such a bad person for being so angry, this anger is really unacceptable and on and on, but really identified, that's unwise attention. Whereas if we bring attention to the experience of the anger itself, just what we've been saying with mindfulness the whole time, but just noticing it as it is arising in the moment, the experience in the moment, the thoughts, the sensations, the associations, but without identifying and without feeding it, that's wise attention. It's not that anger is intrinsically fit or unfit for attention, for example. Wise attention has been, I think, in some ways, Underrated, because the Buddha says that unwise attention is at the root of our being caught in all these rounds of samsara, that it's really not paying attention in the right way to what's going on that keeps us caught. Whereas wise attention is really what frees us. With wise attention, these underlying... Tendencies do not arise. Arisen ones are abandoned. So all seven of these methods require wise attention. In a way, you could think of mindfulness as wise attention. That makes it simpler. And obviously, without mindfulness, we're not even paying attention to what we're doing, so any of these methods don't work because you don't even think to use them Um, So wise attention is underlying, and the first method itself is actually abandoning these tendencies by wise seeing, wise attention again. So I just want to say a bit more about it um, to give another example of how to pay attention in a wise way. And again, this is nothing new. If you can pay attention at the bare sense experience, sound, unpleasant, as opposed to all the stories and associations and judgments and everything about the sound, that's wise attention. Some, a handy way, if you're not really sure, if you're, you know, you think you're paying attention wisely to all the stories about the sound and this and that, you think it's wise. But another way the Buddha gave to tell whether it's wise or unwise attention, and this It's so practical. Wise attention means that if you're paying attention to what's happening in the appropriate way, to the appropriate thing, then if there's unwholesome states arising, they will diminish. And other unwholesome states will not come. So if you're paying attention to something and get more and more and more aggravated, frustrated, angry, resistant, There's something you're not seeing wisely. You're somehow paying attention in the wrong way, or there's identification. So that's unwise attention. You know, you're paying attention. You might be really trying your best, but you're just getting more and more out of control. Okay. Either you're paying attention in the wrong way or to the wrong thing. Again, I gave a whole talk about that, but a lot of our um, advice when we say, okay, you're really caught in the anger, it's time to move the attention away, That's looking at wise attention. The mindfulness isn't strong enough to be with the anger as it is, so you need to advert the attention elsewhere. Example of wise attention. Now I'm taking a whole hour talk and putting it into five minutes here, so I'm just saying this as a reminder. There's a couple of other things I want to say about this wise attention. that I. This is again from the suttas that I didn't exactly mention in this way before. How we attend in the wrong way, specific to these three tendencies, these asabas. He says that what attending in the wrong way that helps sense desire arise. When there's sense pleasure, and I think I said this in my other talk, not just noticing the pleasant, but your attention is really getting sucked into the gratification of that sense pleasure. This is subtle. But it's not just noticing pleasantness. You might be, oh, this is really nice. It's really pleasant. I really like it. You could even be noting that, but not quite aware of the personal gratification. That's what really allows sense desire to keep booming up. It keeps getting bigger. Now, the second one is very interesting. What helps being? the sense of desire for being, arise and increase. And I think this is a limited explanation, but it's interesting. When we attend to the gratification in meditative states, and that's a very subtle one, not just that they're pleasant, but that gratification, you know, that sense of me having this exalted meditative state. And that's even gross. It wouldn't be that obvious. But so when we're attending to the gratification rather than just what's happening. And the last one is if we attend or pay attention to anything, <laughs> anything that's arising, through one of in the in through one of what is called the four perversions of perception, the four upside down incorrect perceptions, I'll tell you what they are. We do it all the time. When we, when we attend, looking through one of these four inverted perceptions, ignorance arises and increases. So the four inverted perceptions are seeing what is impermanent as permanent, seeing what is painful as pleasurable. Yeah, you can relate to that. And the first one is obvious. The second one, is that obvious too? Yes, Mm -hmm. (laughs) not. The third one, seeing what is not self as self. Clearly we do this all the time. The fourth one is perceiving what is, this is our very Victorian language, perceiving what is foul as beautiful. That one I personally have a harder time with than the others. The others, no question, I do it all the time. But I think foul isn't a word we'd use But I'm sure they're referring to our lovely bodies, for one thing, (laughs) and really seeing them as beautiful in a way that leads to attachment. Let me give you an example of how subtle this can be. It's really interesting. It's from when I was sitting at some retreat, I think it was last fall, As I went back, I thought maybe all the first three or maybe all four of these inverted perceptions were there, but it can be very subtle. I was um, on retreat and at a point where I was quite mindful and eating, and in that state where I was really noting, you know, pretty much everything that was going on, and then I would notice a series of thoughts, uh, you know, a quick thought, a a quick image, a quick story, and there'd be maybe four to six really quick thoughts before I would really see it and start noting again. As soon as I saw it and noted, they would fall away. There was no real clinging, and when I looked at the thoughts themselves, there was nothing particularly in them that seemed attractive or clinging, and I, I got really interested. I said, so what's the hook here? You know, I'm clearly aware there is some hook that's drawing me into these little thought stories that in themselves are nothing. And when I really looked, I saw that with each thought, starting with the first one that came, because this kept happening, there was a very subtle sense of I, you know, that that clutching, that contraction of me, just subtly identifying with the thought, and that that was pleasant, that I experienced that little me as pleasant. And not, of course, even noticing, I wasn't even noticing that little contraction of me, never mind that there was some kind of pleasant feeling to it or comfortable feeling or something. That's almost going too far. And in not seeing that, the clinging, the sense of being would build, you know, and it would start going into one, the next, the next, the next. Again, as soon as I saw it, the whole thing would vanish. So, if you can get it, it's quite subtle. But somehow, there's the permanent, because there's no me if it's not permanent. There's the really perceiving what is totally painful. The sense of me is nothing but a burden. And I was perceiving it as pleasant. Oh, yeah, nice. This nice sense of me, you know, so comfortable with this. And not self is self. What is foul is beautiful. I wasn't as aware of that one. But whenever we're looking, perceiving experience through the veil of one of these four inverted, upside-down perceptions... That's a moment when ignorance arises and increases. Remembering that wise seeing cuts right through. You don't have to think about it. It's like if in that moment I had stopped and said, Well, which of the four inverted perceptions am I looking at right now? Off into another uh, unwise attention, which is thinking and analyzing and wondering in the past and the future and at least a skeptical doubt or what the Buddha called the thicket of views, the wilderness of views. Stay out of the wilderness of views and just bring your attention back to what's actually happening right now. Okay, that's enough about wise attention. So, wise attention, abandoning these underlying potentials through seeing. The second way is abandoning through restraint at the sense doors. Now again, we've spoken about that a lot. I just want to refresh your memories how that works in terms of not allowing these underlying tendencies to flower. Obviously, restraint, it doesn't mean we don't look, we don't see, we don't smell, we don't touch, we don't think. But it means, using Buddha Das's term, to bring satipanya, mindfulness, wisdom into the mind at the point of sense contact. So we know what's what. So that at the level of perception, there's clear awareness. You smell a pleasant smell. There's the perception it's pizza. It ends there. It doesn't go into whatever your whole field of proliferation and papancha is about pizza. You end up in Sicily. You're watching The Godfather. I don't know what your particular things are about pizza. It doesn't have to go that way. You know, papancha is the word that proliferation is the best uh, definition of it. And one of the commentaries describes it as the proliferations of mind that assail a person, that obsess a person, that torment a person. If we can bring mindfulness wisdom in at the point of pleasant smell that's a pizza, (sighs) relief. That's what we mean by restraint at the sense door. Just being right there, as Ajahn Chah says, when you smell a pleasant smell, leave it at the nose. (laughs) could we only do that? (laughs) There's one other, um, I think this is interesting. I don't know if I'm getting too detailed with this tonight, but I thought this was very interesting. As a help for understanding when we're present with our perception at the sense door, how to, to not let the proliferation grab a hold and take over. He's talking about restraint. He says, On seeing a form with the eye, one who's practicing restraint does not grasp at the forms, no, the signs and features. These are the particular words he uses. I'll explain them. So then um, either desire or aversion doesn't take over. Now, what they mean by not grasping at the signs and features say there's a form a person that you've previously thought of as beautiful or attractive. The sign would be the most distinctive apparent perception that one sees about that person. So for example, there's just visual form seeing and immediately there's the shape of that person. Maybe that's the sign, the first distinctive thing that hits your eye, or perception. And the unmindful, unrestrained sense door would be this grasping. Oh, that's such a beautiful form. Grasping right then. And that's where the whole proliferation begins. Either going into desire, if that's the particular bent, or aversion, either at them or at you for not being as beautiful or whatever. Comparing gets going. That's the sign. And then the... um, Features would be, once that sign is grasped unmindfully, all the other little facets that feed it. So you start with the form and then you go, yeah, they're so beautiful, and look at their hair and the way that they dress and they walk so gracefully and yada, 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 you know. And the whole proliferation gets grasped at and going. The details that catch the the attention. But when that first perception is met with mindfulness... At the sense door, that's restraint. You're not saying no, make grasping not arise. You're just seeing form, form, pleasant. You know it doesn't have to go any farther. So this is all familiar, correct? <laughs> We've all been practicing all of this, correct? <laughs> okay. So the first is abandoning these tendencies through wise seeing. And again, it's not I am going to rip out this tendency, root it up, extirpate it. It's not a sense of I'm abandoning, okay? It's just that they just lose their potency through wise seeing, through restraint at the sense doors. The third one I find quite interesting, and we're moving into the bigger picture here, is wise attention to the attitude with which we use things, with which we use the requisites for our life. Now, the Buddha was talking to monks and nuns, but it's the same for us. What's the attitude with which we use food, with which we use clothing, with which we relate to shelter, that we can do that, we can use whatever we need, with care, with simplicity, taking just what we need for comfort, not to, you know, have to be some kind of harsh ascetic. taking what we need, but not out of a kind of a greed, I better take extra in case there's not more later, you know, not out of fear, not out of a sense of I need more now because there's not enough to go around, too bad for you. And you can see in the this planet, what's happening to the environment, if we all just related to using what we need with this wise attention, with a sense of paying attention to the attitude with which we use what we need, this planet would be a vastly different place. I don't think we'd be having all the environmental problems that we're having. But not even, looking that's the really big scale, But just beginning to explore here, and it's the same for in our lives, to see in little ways how are we relating to the food. And this is not to get into this judgment, you know, I'm taking more than I need when you're really in the grip of craving and you can't stop it. You know, pay attention, just pay attention to that. But there's plenty of times when we're really not paying attention, and we could, to the attitude with which we use things. And when we do pay attention and just take what we need and don't let ourselves be run by fear and greed, it brings in such an ease and simplicity into the way one relates to one's life, to the environment, to our requisites. little example. When I'm on retreat, usually I just take what the food is there. Um, Somehow over the years it's gotten to be not such a big deal. But, you know, every now and then, I'll think, I better take an extra banana, because some mornings there's not a banana, and I really like bananas better than oranges. And I'll take that banana. It's never anything but trouble. It sits in my room. I don't remember to bring it up to breakfast, or there's bananas for the next 10 days, or I don't actually want the banana anyway, you know. And then the next day I save extra peanut butter and it. I have to figure out what to put it in and where to keep it and should I bring it up and then what will people think of me. And it balloons into so much grief. It's so much trouble. If I just forget the banana and take what's there, there's just space. There's ease. There's going to be something to eat tomorrow. So what if it's not a banana, you know? It's so much easier. Or saving, you know, five blankets because I know I'm sensitive to cold and it might get cold. And after three months, I haven't used four of them, but I might need one. Shuffling them around the room and figuring out what to do with them and feeling guilty and just looking (laughs) at how we use stuff. And it might be that you have low blood sugar and you do have to save something from tea because you need a little snack at 10 at night. That's fine. It's the Buddha saying, Let me see, where does he say this, actually? He's talking, he goes through the different requisites, but here he's talking about reflecting wisely, using food not for amusement or for vanity. That could also mean not eating to look good, but also not not eating to look good not for embellishment, but for the endurance and continuing of this body, for ending discomfort, and for support of the holy life. And he says then, the person is considering, thus shall I terminate old, unwholesome feelings without arising new ones, in other words, without getting into massive craving, and shall live in comfort and health. There's nothing wrong with a level of basic comfort, using what we need to maintain a level of comfort and health that supports us in our path of awakening. That's useful. And whatever's true, we need wise attention to see what's true for us. What's true for me and what's true for you and what we need to eat can be vastly different, and it doesn't matter. That's why comparing is such a useless waste of time. Not that we can drop it, but it is. But really looking at the attitude with which you use things and this wise discernment, this looking at what really supports my ease and comfort and my path of awakening, that brings such such a simplicity, such a sense of trust, you know. I don't have to save the banana. I don't need ten rice cakes back on those back shelves. There'll be something. I can let go into the Dharma and trust the arising moment. It's it's a very powerful way of paying attention. And as you can see, when we're operating in that way, when we're paying attention to the attitude, then the um, underlying tendencies of greed, holding on to sense of self, the fear that comes with ignorance, just don't have the chance to arise. Whereas saving the thing with the idea of I won't get hungry later is actually setting the conditions for all these unwholesome potentials to arise. So explore that while you're here. But obviously, it's the same in our life. And this is a way that we can really use our daily life to support the purification of our heart and mind. Paying attention to how we use things. The next two, we've talked about quite a bit. I'll try. I'll just say a little. The next one is the um, is removing these underlying tendencies through the, the word the translation is enduring. Um, I'll I'll use patience as an aspect of meta, but it's we've talked ad nauseum about this. It's basically the patient heart and mind is the one that is present and spacious and able to be here without reacting when we don't like what's happening. The Buddha gives the examples, you can really hear how they live outside, the forest life. He gives the examples of what can be abandoned by enduring Here a bhikkhu, reflecting wisely, bears cold, heat, hunger, thirst, contact with flies, wind, burning and creeping things. He endures ill-spoken, unwelcome words and bodily feelings that are painful, racking, sharp, piercing, disagreeable, distressing, and menacing to life. (laughs) Enduring is not gritting our teeth with low level aversion and saying, I'm sitting here until the bell rings and I can move. Enduring, as we know, is really the patient quality of mind that's open, present, non-reactive. And we've talked a lot about that. But noticing the next one, and these two kind of pair together in my mind, that it needs wise discernment to tell which is which, because the, the next one, There's removal by avoiding. That's the next one. First there's enduring, but then there's avoiding. And this is where we need to use wise discernment. That those things which are really unsupportive, unskillful, or downright dangerous to our practice or our life, if one can, one avoids them. Which is a way of helping us to abandon the tendency for these things, these difficult states to arise. Now again, his examples, reflecting wisely, one avoids a savage elephant, a savage bull, a savage dog. We're talking a different culture here. A snake, a stump, a chasm, a cliff, a cesspool, a sewer. Frequenting bad friends or unwholesome companions. So here, sometimes, the savage elephant might be something in your mind. It might be the person, say, sometimes, you know, a little thing gets going with someone. Not just that you get on each other's nerves, that happens, but sometimes you get a little nice thing going with someone here, but you start kind of looking at each other, or you start kind of joking in a silent way, or something that feels good, but actually, if you pay attention, it's taking you away from being present? It's not that the person or you are bad, but that's something to avoid. And sometimes when we talk about avoidance as a skillful means to help abandon the tendency to ignorance, to greed, You know, we we can get into such a macho attitude of, I should be able to be mindful in the middle of everything. I should be able to be with everything, the most difficult. And if I'm not, it's because I'm not good enough. I'm wimping out. But look at the environment we've set up here, you know. We're begging you not to get your mail, not to make phone calls, not to talk to each other. We don't have, you know, news bulletins, the BBC set up in the lobby telling you what's going on every night. It's a really protected environment. Does that mean you're all a bunch of wimps because you can't do this in the middle of Fifth Avenue in New York City? We really need to look at what supports our awareness. And with wise discernment, when we can make a decision to avoid something, please do so. There'd be plenty that we can't. And that's when we use patience or endurance. You know, when I was in Thailand for about a year as a nun, these two were a really rich area of exploration. Finding the wise discernment to kind of walk the difference between what I really could avoid and what I couldn't avoid, but wished I could avoid. And I saw at first that I really had to learn patience because there's so much that's difficult. You know, you go to Asia thinking I'm gonna have this silent retreat in nature, forget it, forget it. (laughs) Half the time I was in Bangkok in the middle of the hot season, extremely unpleasant, take my word for it, and I like hot weather. Um, When I finally got out of Bangkok, Um, The food was really difficult for me to eat. I hadn't eaten meat in probably 15 years, and all the food had greasy meat in it. And uh, I finally got to a lovely little temple in the jungle. You think the jungle is silent. Go sit in a jungle. It is so noisy, so noisy. Snakes all over the place, poisonous snakes just flopping down on the roof. Incredible, incredible insect life, not to mention the tourists who come to the the temples for picnics. You know, you're just doing walking meditation, you turn around and there's someone with a camera right in your face the second you turn around. Oh, let me take a picture of the cute nun, you know, and how to develop patience. I spent months, months cultivating aversion until I finally noticed, oh, I think maybe I have a choice here. Did I come to cultivate aversion? No, I don't think so. And really, patience, a mind like the earth that doesn't react, no matter what's thrown on it, that's the way of peace. And once there is that patience, then wise discernment of what actually could be avoided. So, for example, I didn't particularly like any of the food, but some of it really made me ill. That's appropriate to avoid that, if you have the choice without making trouble. I mean, as a nun, you can't ask for something special. Or I found that I could put a sheet over the door of my kuti so tourists didn't come and just stand there and stare in to see what the cute nun looked like when she was meditating, you know? So that's quite okay, avoiding something that's just going to bring up the tendencies. But when you can't, there's patience. And that both are very skillful and very helpful. So, looking at that here, and again, with wise seeing with skillful means, it's always from the intention. Avoiding is not from the intention of hatred. It's from the intention of clear seeing. Oh, when I keep going into this situation, I get lost in anger. I go to this walking place, somebody else is there, I get lost in anger. You do that 10 days in a row and you think, maybe I'll go to a different walking place. That's like skillful avoidance. It's not from aversion. Okay, so let's see if I can name these. There's wise seeing, restraint at the sense store. I'm missing one now. Oh, gosh. Oh, how we use things. Patience, wise avoidance. The sixth method is called um, removing. (laughs) Again, I think we need to use different words for this. But it's um, when restraint at the sense door didn't quite happen. And a strong, unwholesome state of mind and heart has taken hold, has taken root. It could just be a strong, uh, greedy series of thoughts, a really eye-centered series of thoughts, aversive, fearful, whatever it is, that we can actually abandon continuing to feed the habit of these tendencies arising by, quote, removing the unwholesome emotion or train of thought. Now, that's not what we think about when we first start practice, which is literally removing, you know, and done with a lot of aversion. It's more what, it's basic, the basic mindfulness we've talked about all along. I'll take anger again, since we've talked about it. Bringing awareness to the anger itself, the thoughts that are feeding it, but I am right. Isn't that one of the biggest hooks to keeping anger going? They are acting like a jerk. It isn't appropriate in this environment. Somebody really does need to do something and no one but me is noticing so I need to do something and uh, you know. And when to bring awareness in at the point of what is allowing these tendencies already arisen to increase? And as we say, you can bring in, you know Joseph calls this sword of wisdom where you can really bring in the mindfulness right at the point of those thoughts and go, okay, that's enough. Not, that's enough, I hate it, but that's enough. With great determination, you just bring your mindfulness in at the point of that thought, the second you notice it, and again, and again. I call it in my mind when I have some strong thought like that going or strong emotion, being really ruthless with awareness. Ruthless in that, that thought, the little tendrils of it, do not get to slip by. Or the image that's sometimes given is that, although it's unwise because there's a little aversion in it, the cat waiting at the hole for the mouse to come out. OK, if you take away the wanting to pounce and kill, take that part away, and just have the, the, that clear attention. Not hating the thought, but it's not going to slip by, the sword of wisdom. That quality of resolution, of clear mindfulness, that's removal at that point. It just doesn't keep expanding. Now, as we all know, that takes a great delicacy. And again, the intention cannot be coming from fear or hatred or self-judgment. Because A, it won't work, the fear, the hatred, the self-judgment just gets stronger. If you pay attention, you'll notice that. But every moment that we're mindful, even though it seems the thoughts, the emotion keeps going, that moment of clear recognition is actually cutting the increasing of that underlying tendency. Again, you don't always notice it right away. If we're not mindful, then it's just uh, like a snowball getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So that's one way of removal, not giving it room to expand the unwholesome thoughts, the unwholesome mental states. There's other ways. One, and this a lot of people have, have been asking about in interviews lately, just trying to get clear on the, um, when this is skillful. It's almost like thought substitution, but one of the ways that we can use our training in the Brahmaviharas. Viharas, so taking metta. Metta really is the wise intention, the second step of the Eightfold Path, that counteracts the unwise thought of ill will. And applied skillfully, it's really a way of, quote, removal. And let me give you an example from my experience of skillful and unskillful. Take of ill will the turning in on yourself kind of worthlessness, self-judging, I'm no good, the whole pattern, if you should happen to have that, how it particularly goes for you. So I see that arising in me and using it skillfully, recognizing that pattern, letting myself feel it, really acknowledging it. And then I have been watching this pattern for I don't know how many years, close to 30 years now. I'm really familiar with it. I haven't had a surprise in how it works for quite a while. So when I notice it, to really acknowledge its presence, to feel it, and then it's like saying, you know, I really don't need to dwell here. In a very clear way, I really don't need to dwell in this pattern, this state of mind. It's like changing the channels. I think I'll change the meta channel. And I start doing some meta. Now, I'm not really in aversion to the state, to the self-hatred, and that's what's important. I'm just seeing it. It's what it is. I don't need to go there. And I start doing meta. And usually by about the second set of phrases, I'm really, then, really on the meta channel. The first set of phrases, it feels like, you know, not really true, a bit phony. By the second set of phrases, the unworthiness isn't there, the metta is for that moment. We can really do that with all the Brahma-viharas, but the key to the skillfulness is that you're not doing the metta out of a fear or hatred of the other state. And you'll know if that's the case because it won't work. So if I'm really in self-hatred, it's like, oh God, I can't bear this. I don't want to feel this anymore. May I be happy? Or when you're... Or, you know, when you're really angry at someone and you say, oh, may I send them metta, may they live in peace, you know. You know, it's phony. You have to acknowledge what's really happening first. But you don't have to indulge in it. You don't have to dwell there. I love that one line of the Buddha's, what the mind dwells upon frequently, towards that it will naturally incline. And we have a choice a lot of the time where it will dwell. So this is a way of removal of unwholesome thoughts that is really very skillful if you can do it without the aversion or without greed, and that's switching the channel to the Brahma-viharas. There's a whole sutta actually, a different one from what I'm talking about, of the Buddhas called the removal of distracting thoughts, and he gives five ways, and I'm just going to name, that all of which are assuming that just being mindful and noticing it, it didn't poof away. We're assuming that to begin with, okay? The first one is just what I was saying, changing the channel. The second is, it still doesn't go away. You switch to metta, and you're still in, I hate myself, I hate everybody, I hate myself, I hate everybody. So you can examine the danger and the suffering of those thoughts. Or if it's clinging and you're really caught in wanting something, examining the danger and the suffering in that. Sometimes that will remove it. The third, try to forget them. These are the first two that don't work. You try to forget those who are there and give your attention to something else, which is in a way what we've said. I just said it a bit under avoidance. You're really caught in desire, in lust. You can't get away from it. So we say, okay, looking at it, you're just getting lost. Move your attention elsewhere. Go back to the breath. Count the breaths. Do the walking and just feel the feet. You know, get connected to something else. That doesn't work, he says. Then try to give attention to looking at what's causing those thoughts. And that might take a little bit of active investigation, but sometimes when you get to the root of what's causing it, then that causes the thought to cease, the removal of it, so to speak. For example... I know if I'm caught in an anger loop and I'm really noting the anger, I come back, I note the sensations, I'm really there, but it keeps zooming up and I know I'm not really seeing what's at the root of it. And sometimes if I really go in, for example, I'll find hurt. And once I see the hurt, oh, that's at the root of it. The other story goes away. I can be with the hurt. That's an example. And then the fifth, I'm just including this because I want you to know it wasn't easy then either. If none of these other ones work, and mindfulness, of course, didn't work, if there still arise unwholesome thoughts connected with desire, with hate, and with delusion, then, I'm quoting, then, with the teeth clenched and the tongue pressed against the roof of the mouth, he should beat down, constrain, and crush The unwholesome state of mind with a wholesome state of mind. (laughs) You can tell he was from a warrior class. But I'm sure we've all been there. (laughs) A wholesome state arise. Mm -hmm. So that's removal. Mm -hmm. And the last, and it's kind of full circle again, back to sort of the meditation and the wise attention, is developing and cultivating the seven factors of enlightenment. Which, if you've been going to the talks by Upandita, that's what his talks have been about throughout this retreat. And um, obviously I can only just mention, but I will mention them. The seven factors of enlightenment, and they all have to come into balance are mindfulness. And then the three energizing factors are investigation of dhammas, energy or courageous effort and rapture. The three calming ones are concentration, tranquility, and equanimity. Mindfulness, you can never have too much mindfulness. It doesn't ever go out of balance. And that's the first. The cause, the proximate cause, the immediate cause for mindfulness to arise, guess what? Mindfulness. One moment of mindfulness, however weak, helps the next moment of mindfulness to arise and be a little stronger. So we just start with mindfulness. I just want to give a very brief description of each of the other six. Investigation, dhamma-vichaya, is not thinking about things. It has nothing to do with thought. But it's the quality, these are mental factors, it's the quality, the mental factor, that lights up the field of awareness so that whatever's arising can be seen clearly. It dissipates confusion. It illuminates whatever's arising. Sometimes actually literally as if a light, but not necessarily, but just so that it's like everything's a fog, and suddenly, ah, that's wanting. A moment of investigation. For all the other six, besides mindfulness, the direct cause for its arising, wise attention. Wise attention is very powerful. Investigation, virya, or courageous effort, And if you think of it in the way Joseph talked about it as courage rather than huge energy, we can find the courage to just meet what's happening. That's courageous effort. The amount, the degree of it goes up and down. But the courage to come face to face with what is. Persistence or endurance. And the third energizing factor... Repeat-y. Again, it's a mental state that has the characteristics of happiness, of a real delight in what is happening. It, it sort of manifests as a real interest, that kind of delight. Wow, my feet are killing me. How fascinating, you know. It doesn't really matter what's going on. Delight and satisfaction. Those times when, and when, You're just really interested. There's a lightness in the mind and a lightness in the body. And it doesn't really matter what's happening. You feel satisfied with it. That's the kind of part of rapture. Rapture can also color other mental states that are happening so they feel very satisfying. Oh, this sense of ease, you know, is so great. It just kind of colors everything. And it has a real bodily quality that goes along with it. So when there's rapture in the mind, this delight, this satisfaction, the body also feels light, kind of agile, supple, you know. It's not a problem. You don't feel like you're dragging, you know, the factors around with you. It feels like it can do whatever it needs to do. It's not troubling you too much. And often there's a lot of physical sensations with rapture, often weird ones that you would never think of as having anything to do with rapture shaking, the floors undulating, or just a kind of lightness, or bugs crawling all over. Don't even so many weird things. But the the mental state of rapture is this suppleness, this delight, this interest in what is happening. And rapture then leads directly to the beginning of the calming factors, the first one which is tranquility. Tranquility or calm Cool calmness, it could be said. It really means non agitation of mind and body. So, the heat that comes from restlessness and anxiety and suffering and all of that energy, tranquility kind of takes that away. And it's that state when um, the mind and body is just really calm and not agitated. That's all, really. It's very cool. It's obviously pleasant, a sense of ease. The next calming factor is concentration, which we've talked about a lot. Again, its, it's quality is collectedness of mind and attention and steadiness on whatever's arising. It doesn't have to be long-term concentration. If you're doing absorption practice, it stays steady on one object. In Vipassana, that steadiness is on changing objects. So there's a moment, steady concentration, attention sinks into what's happening. The next moment is a different arising appearance, but there's that same steadiness, concentration arising moment to moment to moment. It's not one, it's arising moment to moment, But even though the things are changing, it can arise steadily without a break. And steadiness of mindfulness is what leads to this steadiness of concentration. And the last, the calming, is equanimity, or upeka, which we know is the non-reactive quality of mind, very connected, very non-reactive. But there's another way of thinking about it, in relationship to these energies, to these factors of enlightenment, that it's a balance of mind that actually balances all the other energies. So, for example, when wisdom and faith are out of balance, you know, that's been talked about, there's a lot of energy when faith is out of balance, but you can be, you know, so energized you don't know what's happening. When there's too much wisdom, you're thinking and thinking and analyzing and thinking about the Dharma, but you're not actually present. When they're balanced, equanimity there. This energy that's in the middle and balances all the other energies. So what it feels like is there's a sense, a state of ease. When it feels like the mindfulness is just going on by itself. Everything feels balanced and easy. The mind isn't getting caught up going to one side or the other. That's another aspect of equanimity. So I just name them so you recognize them. They all need to be balanced, which is happening naturally through our mindfulness practice. But knowing what they are, occasionally, when you're feeling really like out of balance, you can't figure out what's going on, sometimes to just mentally go through a checklist of the the seven factors of enlightenment, just in a very calm way, you sometimes know, oh, there's no calm going on right now. There's no tranquility. I'm really alert. Things are really interesting, but I'm totally agitated with it. Oh, that's interesting. No. Sometimes just knowing that, the equanimity begins to kick in. It begins to balance. So that's the seventh method And as far as how to cultivate the seven factors, I'll just close with this quote from the Buddha, how it all just works together. Mindfulness of breathing, when developed and repeatedly practiced, fulfills the four foundations of mindfulness. The four foundations of mindfulness, when developed and repeatedly practiced, perfect the seven factors of enlightenment. It happens by itself. The seven factors of enlightenment, when developed and cultivated, fulfill true knowledge and deliverance. It all starts with awareness of breathing, wise attention. So let's just sit quietly for a moment.